Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. It is once again a Wednesday afternoon, and I am standing at GCA speaking to an empty room of empty chairs. I'm reminded of a time several years ago where there was a couple that was visiting GCA, and they said that they didn't like our music because we were just singing hymns and not doing any of the uh, modern choruses, although I think their complaint was we weren't more southern gospel-ish. But anyways, they complained about our music. And I said to them, did you think that we were attempting to entertain you? The music's not for you. The music is for God. The congregation of a church is not meant to be the audience of the church that is just sitting passively either observing what's going on at the front of the room or being entertained by what's going on at the front of the room. The congregation collectively is supposed to be singing and praising God. God is the audience. So I am reminded one more time that God is the audience and that I stand here at this pulpit today for the purpose of glorifying God, who deserves to have his word preached, to have his son lifted up, to have his word exposited all for his own glory. And so I stand here again doing what I am committed to doing despite the virus. Now, speaking of the virus, today in Proverbs, We're going to come across the phrase, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. While we're all stuck at home, many of us without work, while these difficult times for our economy is happening, and while we're all hoping for a cure for this virus, most of us, simply because we're human, want to also know why. Why is this happening? And I have heard so many speculations on the internet. Everything from God is paying us back for our blood guiltness in abortion to the profanation of marriage to our general sinfulness sexually as a society all the way to this is God's way of proving our lack of commitment and demonstrating how easily the government can shut down the church because so many churches have chosen not to meet together while the virus is happening. Well, the truth of the matter is nobody knows. No one knows for sure what the reason is beyond the fact that a sovereign God has brought this virus. Now, he may have been inspired by everything I just mentioned and more. He is certainly inspired by our sinfulness. And this is all part of God acting in human history. We see plenty of examples of God bringing plagues and famines 
and pestilences on the land and on the planet. But if you're going to try to find one exacting reason why he is doing this, it's going to be impossible to figure out because God simply has not told us. And this idea that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter is not just said in Proverbs, it's also in Deuteronomy 29.29, which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, God is not under any compunction to tell us everything. God has secret things. God has things that he has concealed, things that he has kept to himself. There are just simply things that God knows, that God has done, that human beings aren't told about. There are revealed things. God has told us very important, vital things about our own salvation and the way to get to heaven through Christ and his specific and complete atoning work on our behalf. That is all revealed to us. But the secret things belong to God, and it is part of his glory. It's part of his nature. It's part of his character. It's part of his makeup to conceal things. Now, when Solomon says that, we're also going to read that it is the glory of kings to then search things out. But even kings, human kings, are never going to know everything that God knows, obviously. God is incomprehensible to the human mind. And so we have to satisfy ourselves with the things that God has actually revealed. And the best way to know what God has revealed for us, what has he intended for us, the best way to know that is to actually read his word. So that's what I'm doing here on a Wednesday afternoon in an empty room speaking to empty chairs. I'm very grateful to God that at this moment in time, the internet exists so that I can continue talking not only to the immediate congregation right here in the area, but also talking to the congregation at large out there. And again, I am very, very grateful for all the internet listeners and internet supporters that have kept this work going for close to 19 years now. All right, we are in Proverbs chapter 24. We are starting at verse 23. We have just read 30 sayings or adages from wise men. And then at verse 23, we're told these also are sayings of the wise. Now, we don't know whether that original 30 sayings was collected by Solomon, and then later he thought of a few more, so he added them to the list. We don't know why there were specifically 30 sayings, and then a couple more at the end of the chapter. And these final sayings are a bit of a hodgepodge, and yet they match thematically with everything else that we have seen in the book of Proverbs. If you've been listening at all as we've been going through Proverbs, then you've recognized that there just are certain themes. And those themes are, again, picked up, restated, 
as we continue going through the book. For instance, these are the sayings of the wise, says verse 23, to show partiality in judgment is not good. What does that partiality look like? He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. This is a theme that we've seen repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. Solomon, speaking as a king, as the judge of Israel, says that it's necessary to show good judgment, wise judgment. And certainly one of the things that we know about the wisdom of Solomon was that he demonstrated good judgment. For instance, when the two women came to him with the baby, both claiming that it was their baby and the other's baby had died, Solomon showed wisdom in the way that he judged that matter. And I think it's interesting that the Bible records that particular moment of judgment as a demonstration of Solomon's wisdom, because wisdom leads to good judgment. And part of good judgment is not showing partiality, rather paying attention to the actual facts. What are the facts of the matter? And then where do those facts lead you, regardless of whether the outcome is going to affect a rich man or a powerful man or a poor person or somebody you like who is also wicked? In other words, if you say to the wicked person, you are righteous, you are innocent, if you adjudicate them positively, despite the fact that you know that they're wicked, that they're wrong, that they're guilty, well, the outcome of that is going to be that people generally are not going to trust you. The word peoples here is the same as the word nations. It means people groups. So if you are a king over a particular people group and you don't demonstrate good judgment, then people aren't going to trust you. They're not going to follow you. They're not going to follow your laws because they know that you are capricious, that you make things up as you go, and that you're willing to let the evil run free. So then, obviously, to show partiality in judgment is not good, which seems like a bit of an understatement. It's not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. It's not a God-honoring thing to show partiality in judgment. And if someone says to a wicked person, you're righteous, then peoples are going to curse him and nations will abhor him. But on the other hand, if you are meeting out good judgment, but to those who rebuke the wicked, well, then there's going to be delight. There's going to be blessings, not only blessings that come from God, but blessings that apparently come from the society, the collection of people. They're going to trust you. They're going to follow you. They're going to obey your laws. It's just going to go better for the society and for your nation over whom you are king if you rebuke the wicked. And then a good blessing is going to come upon that person. So giving a right answer, giving a proper answer, not showing partiality, but being willing to rebuke the evil person is a way of giving a correct answer. 
And so the next thing we read is that that correct answer is a desirable thing. It's a good thing. Verse 26 says, he kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Obviously, what that means is a right answer is a desirable, a pleasant thing. A kiss on the lips is an intimate thing. It demonstrates that you love somebody or that you really are intimate in your trust of somebody. When you give the right answer, when you give the proper judgment, that is equatable to a kiss on the lips, a highly esteemed, intimate, desirable, pleasurable thing. So those four verses combined demonstrate the very high value that wise men place on good judgment and how bad it's going to go for you if you're showing partiality in the way that you mete out judgment, if you free the wicked, if you hold as guilty, as accountable, an actual innocent person. Well, that's not going to go well for you or for your nation, for the people that you are the king over. And so you don't show partiality in judgment, but it's a really good thing. Good blessings come on you. It's like a kiss on the lips when you give a correct answer. Now, this idea of proper answer is picked up again repeatedly, thematically, in the book of Proverbs. For instance, even though we're not going to go back and look at every verse that says the same thing, it's worth just going one chapter ahead and looking at chapter 25, verse 11, where we are reading more Proverbs from Solomon, where he is likening good words, proper words, a correct answer to really valuable things. Like chapter 25, verse 11 says, like apples of gold in settings of silver. Okay, if you have an apple-sized piece of gold that is coated in silver, that's a really valuable thing. That's something you can trade for a whole lot of money. That's going to demonstrate your personal wealth. And he says, a word spoken in right circumstances is like that. Knowing what to say and when to say it. Finding yourself in circumstances, difficult circumstances, hard circumstances, positive circumstances, and knowing what the right thing to say is, is absolutely invaluable. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 12 says, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. In other words, when someone corrects, when someone who is wise in their correction, when somebody is knowledgeable of the things of God and is able to reprove and correct someone, if you're listening, if you're paying attention to those wise words, to those words spoken in right circumstances, that's like an earring of gold. That's a valuable thing. It's like an ornament of fine gold. In other words, you would wear an ornament or a gold earring as a demonstration of your personal wealth and personal value. And Solomon says that's what it's like 
when somebody has a listening ear, when they have the ear to hear, they're paying attention when wise people are talking, especially when a wise person reproves them, when a wise person corrects them. They're willing to listen. They're willing to pay attention. It's like a earring of gold. And so when you put verse 11 and 12 together, what you get is the value of the words spoken under proper circumstances, knowing how to reprove somebody, how to correct somebody. And then it's equally of value for somebody to listen to that reproof, to listen to that correction. Is it worth pointing out then that Paul in the New Testament would say that the word of God, the scripture, is God-breathed? 2 Timothy 3.16, if you want to look it up, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. In other words, if human words spoken under right circumstances is as valuable as an apple of gold in settings of silver, well then how much more valuable is the word of God, which does the same thing as far as instructing us, teaching us, but also correcting and reproving us. If you have a listening ear, if you're willing to pay attention when wise words correct or reprove you, that's of value not only here and now, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold, but that's also of value eternally. The Word of God, the very God-breathed Word of God, is of such value, it's more valuable than all the gold on the planet and all the silver on the planet, all heaped together. The Word of God which is able to make one wise, which is able to correct, to reprove, to instruct, to make the man of God thoroughly sufficient, moving on to all good works, that's what's of real value. That's what's of actual value. So the book of Proverbs puts a great deal of emphasis on wise words, wise instruction, wise reproof, and it places a very high value on being able to hear that reproof, to hear those wise words. I think we're all familiar with people who you speak to, you tell them the word of God. You're you're doing it for the sake of their soul. They have this cancer of sin coursing through them, and for their own sake, you try to tell them the truth of God, the truth of the word of God, how that's going to bring them into right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And some people just can't hear it. They don't know the value of actually listening to that correction, to that reproof, to that word spoken under right circumstances. So both the word of correction and reproof is of value, but also the ability to hear it is of great value, I would argue, of infinite value. All right, we're back to chapter 24. He kisses the lips who gives a right answer. Verse 27 then says, prepare your work outside 
and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then, build your house. Even though that verse on its face might seem a little difficult to decipher, you're going to see more references in a moment to sluggishness and how it's necessary to actually do the work, which is one of the themes that recurs in the book of Proverbs. So I think in light of that, what verse 27 is getting at is, if you begin by building your house, you're building the place where you're going to be comfortable, where you're going to be able to rest. But after you've built that house and are resting in it, you're not going to have any food, you're not going to have any sustenance. So it's necessary still to do the work first before you emphasize the comfort, before you put the energy into making yourself comfortable, put the energy into providing for yourself and for your family. That's why you prepare your work outside. In other words, not in the house. And you make it ready for yourself in the field. That's the preparation part. You make it ready. You go out and do the work in the field in order to plant the crops that are going to grow later, that are going to sustain you. So prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then, you build your house, your place of comfort, your place of rest. If you get that backwards and you start with the rest, as we're going to read in a moment, you're going to end up with nothing. But if you do the proper preparation, if you do everything in order, if you do things according to priority, then that is wisdom. And that is going to result in having sufficient to provide for yourself and to provide a place of protection and rest for yourself. So prepare your work outside, make it ready for yourself in the field, afterwards then, build your house. And then verse 28, we're back to talking about proper judgment. This time from the perspective of the witness instead of the judge. It reads, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. So two things there. The opposite of giving a right answer would be being deceptive with your lips. The particular lie that's being referenced here is being a witness against your neighbor without a cause. Now that takes you all the way back to the Ten Commandments. You're told very specifically not to be a false witness, not to say that you know something, that you witness something, when you didn't actually witness it, one of the requirements of the law was that in order to bring a charge against a person, there had to be adequate witness. There had to be at least two people who were willing to say, I saw this, I am witness to this, so that a single person could not go to a judge and say, no, really, I saw my neighbor do such and such, and therefore you need to hold him guilty just because they don't like their neighbor. There has to be adequate witness in order to bring somebody before the court. So if you just didn't like your neighbor, and so you trumped up a charge against him, but you're just one witness, you would go to someone else and you would 
convince them or you would pay them, you would put pressure on them in some way, especially if they owed you something, you could use that as leverage in order to get them to say that they saw what they didn't see. In other words, they are the false witness. Even in the Proverbs, it's brought up again. Do not be a false witness against your neighbor without a cause. And do not deceive, do not lie with your lips. Repeatedly, we've seen in the Bible the necessity not only to not be a false witness, but not to lie, making things up in order to self-aggrandize or making things up in order to pull somebody else down, making things up in order to lead somebody astray, or even making things up in order to appeal to somebody. All of that is lying, and the Bible says repeatedly, don't lie, don't deceive with your lips, because that is the very opposite of a word spoken in right circumstances. That is the very opposite of giving a right answer, a correct answer, an appropriate answer. Instead, you're lying. Equally then, in verse 29, don't engage in vengeance. We've seen it said repeatedly, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will recompense. This is a primary concept in the Bible, that it's not up to you, the sinner, who has repeatedly offended a holy God, it's not up to you to take it on yourself to avenge yourself because you've been offended by somebody else. Instead, the enemies of God will be properly judged and God will pour out proper vengeance. But only he, from his standpoint of absolute holiness, righteousness, and sinlessness, can adjudicate properly and hand out vengeance that is righteous vengeance. Any vengeance that we humans might hand out is tarnished, is broken, is incorrect because of our innate sinfulness. And so verse 29 would say, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. In other words, he's done something bad to me. Now I'm going to do something bad to him in exchange. I'm going to do to him what he did to me, and I'm going to render to him according to his work, apparently his work against me. What he did, I'm going to make him pay for. Instead, the proper approach would be to take him before the judge, let the judge judge with impartiality, let him look at the facts and come to a proper conclusion. Don't bring a false witness in with you in order to make the charges look worse than they really are. And so I think that entire section of sayings has kind of been grouped together in a way that they are all making reference to one overarching idea. And that overarching idea is judgment. When a king sits down to judge, when any judge hands out judgment, they're not to do it with partiality. That's not good. You're not supposed to say to the wicked, you're righteous because people will curse you and people are going to abhor you. 
Rather, you're supposed to rebuke the wicked. That's going to be delightful. That's going to be a blessing. You're supposed to give a right answer because that's desirable and that's appropriate. You're not supposed to be a false witness against your neighbor. You're only supposed to say what you actually know. You're only supposed to testify about what you yourself have observed. You're not supposed to deceive with your lips. You're not supposed to say about your neighbor, he's wronged me, therefore I'm going to wrong him. I'm going to do it personally. Rather, you should leave that up to the judge who's going to judge without partiality. I think those verses collectively teach us proper judgment, proper witnessing, proper testifying, and leaving vengeance up to an impartial judge and ultimately up to God. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that we were going to get back to this idea of being a sluggard, which is why it's necessary to do your work outside, then build your house. Well, verse 30 is going to resort back to talking about the sluggard. I passed by the field of the sluggard, and I passed by the vineyard of a man who was lacking sense. And behold, that vineyard was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. In other words, the vineyard had not been attended to. It hadn't been properly weeded. It was covered with nettles. And the wall that would keep out varmints, that would keep out animals, that would destroy the vine, that wall is broken down. It hasn't been maintained. Why hasn't it been maintained? Why is it overgrown with weeds and nettles and thistles? Why did that all happen? Because the field belongs to a sluggard. The vineyard belongs to a man who's lacking sense. And so the wise man who is speaking this proverb says, I passed by that field, and that's what I witnessed. Verse 32 says, and when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked, and I received instruction. Before we go on, that's a brilliant idea that I don't want to just pass over lightly. The wise man who spoke this proverb that Solomon is reciting here, that wise man, as he walked through his life, saw things, saw circumstances, and rather than just judge the man who had brought about those circumstances, rather than just judge the sluggard because his vine wasn't any good anymore, instead he said, I learned something by looking at that. I looked at it and I received instruction. By looking at the circumstances of life, a wise man can gain knowledge. A wise man can see the principles that have been spelled out in the book of Proverbs actually demonstrated in real life. In actual day-to-day -day life, you can see that these principles that we've been reading are not just good ideas to keep in the back of your mind just in case. They're not meant just to be an intellectual exercise. The themes, the ideas, the principles that we've read in this book are for our good, and the book of Proverbs talks a lot about a sluggard 
and now you have a wise man who comes across a terrible field, an overrun field, and the wall is broken down. This vineyard is no good anymore. And he receives instruction from that. In other words, he recognizes the value of these proverbs. He recognizes that hard work up front before you take your leisure is a really good idea. And I think we can all profit from that. As you walk through your life, pay attention. Pay attention to how these ideas, how these principles actually play out in real life. Because they do. It's demonstrable. You can actually walk through your life, look at society, look at people, and you can see that walking by these principles is very different than the way that foolish people walk. And foolish people end up in all kinds of trouble, and it's because they didn't walk by the principles of wisdom. So I think that's the underlying notion behind this particular saying of the wise. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man that was lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles, its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw, I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. Okay, here's the instruction that he received. Here's what he was reminded of. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want will come like an armed man. The same way that an armed man is going to rob you. That's the way your poverty is going to come upon you. Whatever good things you have are going to dissipate. They're going to disappear. They're going to go away because you were so enamored with going to your house of rest. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. If that sounds familiar, that actually comes from Proverbs 6.10. And actually, I'm going to start reading from chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. There's another one of those. Observe, watch her, gain wisdom from that. Gain wisdom from the things that you see demonstrated. Observe her ways and be wise. The ant, having no chief, no officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. In other words, she makes preparation in advance. Knowing that winter is coming, she prepares in the summer. That's why she doesn't end up doing without, and yet the sluggard will have to do without those good things. Those good things are going to disappear as if he's been robbed at gunpoint. Verse 9 says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? In other words, how long are you going to just lay there? Get up, get busy, do the work. When will you arise from your sleep? Then verse 10 a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Well, that's the same idea that we see here in chapter 24 
a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come on you as a robber and your want like an armed man. Now, since that verse falls under the category, falls under the heading of sayings of the wise, and those sayings of the wise were apparently collected by Solomon in order to teach wisdom to his son, one of those sayings of the wise that he collected quoted directly from Solomon. So the wisdom of Solomon is on display by the very fact that other wise men quote Solomon, and then Solomon quotes them, and in so doing, quotes himself. It's a really important principle. Don't miss it. You got to do the work. You've got to prepare. You can't go through your life just being lazy and then expect everything to work out right. If your whole life is about slumbering, sleeping, being lazy is the idea and not being willing to go out into the field and do the work, then when the time comes where you have an actual need, your poverty is going to come on you like a robber and your want like an armed man. And that is the end of chapter 24 of the book of Proverbs. Chapter 25 then jumps forward about 250 years. That's the gap of time between the life of Solomon and him saying his Proverbs, and then those Proverbs being collected by the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. It reads like this. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. The assumption is that what actually occurred is during the time of Hezekiah, the Proverbs of Solomon had been written down and were rediscovered, apparently, and then transcribed. In other words, taken from the larger book, and those particular Proverbs were then recited. The advantage is, in reciting and transcribing those Proverbs, the men of Hezekiah grouped some of those Proverbs according to topic. And that's really valuable, really helpful for us. I know so far, as we've been reading through the book of Proverbs, I have tried to find thematic elements. I have tried to find similar ideas in various different chapters and bring them together so that we can get a more overarching notion of what Solomon thought about any particular topic. Well, apparently, that's also what the men of Hezekiah did, because they took these various proverbs and grouped them according to topic. And it starts with various proverbs about being king, which would definitely be of great value to Hezekiah, since he was king, and Solomon was the greatest richest, wisest of the kings of Judah, so therefore he would want to know, what did Solomon think about being king? Verse 2 says, what we've already seen, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. So it is the nature, it is the character, it is the makeup of God 
to conceal things. But by contrast, it is the nature, it is the character of kings to search things out. And that can be whether to gain wisdom or whether to render proper judgment. A king, a wise king, is going to search out greater knowledge, greater understanding. And that should be his character. That should be what he's all about. It should be the glory of a king to search out and understand a matter before rendering judgment or before speaking on any topic. He should have a greater, fuller understanding of it. Verse 3 then tells us, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, in other words, if we're drawing a comparison to distance and whether or not you can measure distance, if you were to measure the heavens, they're so very high. If you were to measure the earth, it's so very deep. So the heart of kings is unsearchable. Now, most of us don't have any firsthand knowledge of what that's like or what that's about because most of us have never been kings. But Solomon, being the king, Hezekiah reciting Solomon as a king, would both recognize the reality of that and the responsibility of that. There is a modern saying, a modern adage, that says power corrupts. And that has to be the temptation of every king. I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to have the amount of power that a king has. And therefore, a king has to protect his heart. He has to protect his thoughts. He has to protect his desire to see things go the way that he would like them to go, as opposed to the just and proper way for things to go. The heart of a king, the heart of a wise king especially, has to consider so many things in such great depth and breadth of things that most of us never really have to think about. Therefore, I think it is fair when Solomon considered his own ways, his own thoughts, his own responsibilities, that he would say, it's unsearchable what I go through. You can't understand what it takes to be a proper king. You would have to be able to measure the heavens for height or measure the earth for depth. And in that way, the heart of a king is equally unsearchable. But invariably, whatever king you're talking about, whatever man of power you're talking about, whatever man of authority or riches you're talking about, there are always going to be people who are going to want to advise him. And we've certainly read several things in the book of Proverbs about good counsel, having many counselors, and that there is wisdom in listening to those counselors. But what if one of those counselors is evil? What if Part of his plans are evil plans, and he's going to use the king's power to try to implement his evil on the whole of the kingdom. Well, then it's going to be up to the heart of the king to try to determine whether the council is good counsel or bad counsel, especially knowing that the counsel he takes is going to affect the entire populace. So verse 4 says, Take away the dross from silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. In other words, before a silversmith would work on silver, he would first heat the silver 
so that the dross would be separated from the pure silver and then the smith could do his work on the pure silver in the same way verse 5 says take away the wicked from before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness so obviously the wicked are going to want to have a hearing before the king they're going to want the king to listen I'm immediately reminded of the book of Esther where the king was persuaded to persecute the Jews because of the really bad advice that he was getting from Haman had there been no Haman before the king there'd have been no wicked advice now granted that example is post Solomon but Solomon himself has to know he has to have had counselors wicked people who have come before him in order to persuade him to do things that were either godless or evil incorrect harmful things that were to the benefit of the evil counselor and so the king would say in the same way that you make pure silver by removing the dross from it in that same way if you take away the wicked from the king then the throne is going to be established in righteousness the same way that the silver is made pure the throne is made righteous and established in righteousness by taking away the wicked and that is good advice to every king which again is why I believe that the man of Hezekiah who is the king of Judah would put these things right up front verse 6 do not claim honor in the presence of the king I mean he's the king if you're in a room with the king he's the most important person in the room and so if you start claiming that you're something that you deserve honor in the presence of a king well then it's not going to go well for you which verse 7 is going to say in a moment do not claim honor in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of great men in other words don't take the high seat don't stand in the place where great men have been allowed to stand because the king has bestowed some honor on them don't take that honor to yourself instead wait for the king to establish you in that place of honor because verse 7 says for it is better that it be said to you come up here it is better for you to be told by the king step into this place of honor stand where the great men stand because you have demonstrated yourself to be a trustworthy honorable oftentimes strong and valorous person for it is better that it said to you come up here than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince which also means the king in this instance if you assume a place of honor that you don't deserve the king is going to call you out and you're going to be made to step down which is going to be an embarrassment for you in front of everybody when they see the king put you in your place so again it's better that it be said to you come up here than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen 
And that concept is carried over into the New Testament as well. In fact, Jesus himself picked it up in Luke 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. He said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go recline at the last place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And here's the principle. Jesus, with the parable or the Proverbs, here's the principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in the end, are we really talking about the court of kings? Are we really talking about going to wedding feasts? Or are we talking about a really important principle of life? Well, I contend that we're talking about a really important principle, which is the self-aggrandizing, the egocentric of this world, the ones who automatically think too highly of themselves and think wherever they are that they deserve the place of honor, everybody needs to notice them and their presence, those people are always going to be brought down. But the humble are the ones who are going to be brought up. And in our standing before God, in our relationship before God, if you think that the relationship is based on you and based on the value of you, whether that's your good works, whether that's your sense of your own intrinsic goodness, whether that's the assumption that you're going to go to heaven because, after all, it just wouldn't be heaven without you. You're just so good. That kind of pride, that kind of arrogance, is going to result in you being brought down. And as I say repeatedly, and yet I'm going to say again one more time in this empty room, talking to empty chairs, the most often cited sin in the Bible is the sin of pride. It is part of our human depravity that we just think way too much of ourselves. And God is going to break that pride. And he's either going to break it now or he's going to break it then in judgment. But no one is going to stand in the presence of the king and think they deserve the high seat. If you assume the high seat, the king is going to tell you to step down. And that's going to be a great deal more than just an embarrassment that, in the case of God, is going to be eternal judgment. But if God, in his kindness, humbles you here and now, then you are promised that he is going to raise up the humble. And if it is God who intends to establish you, 
if it is God who intends to give you the glory that Christ alone deserves, then really, how great is that uplifting? Look, I don't know the answer to why we're going through what we're going through right now. I don't know why I'm standing in an empty room right now. I don't know what the purpose, what the cause is, what inspired God to do this particular thing at this particular moment. But what I will not do is engage in the arrogance that assumes that God has either wronged me or has inconvenienced me or has not scattered his church without a very good reason. He knows what he's doing. Our job is to bow in humility to what God is doing, regardless of whether or not he has explained it to us. If it remains concealed, if it remains a secret, then that's up to God. That is what God has purposed to do. It is only arrogance. It is only human pride that thinks we deserve answers. And that's the sort of arrogance, the sort of pride that even John said is the very essence of what sin is. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If you belong to God and you have that sort of arrogance coursing through you, he's going to break you of that. And this may very well be part of God humbling his church and increasing our dependence on him. I mean, we're dependent on him just to keep us from getting sick. Or if we do get sick, whether we live or die is all up to him. And it is necessary, it is a good place to be to come to the realization that it is, in fact, all up to God He's going to do what he's going to do because he is sovereign, because he is on his throne, because he is in the heavens, and he does whatever seems right and good to him. He's going to do it anyway. He is going to bring his people to a humble submission before him in his doing of whatever he's pleased to do. And our protestations of unfairness, or incorrectness, or unrightness, or even demanding an answer as to why. It's obvious in the book of Job that when Job wanted to know why, God didn't tell him why. God's answer was, where were you when I did everything? And I think that's the frame of mind that not only are the Proverbs spelling out for us, but it's the frame of mind that the whole Bible keeps going back to. We, as sinful human beings, as depraved balls of dust who are completely dependent on our maker and our redeemer, we don't have any place to stand up and say to God, I demand answers from you. Even Paul would say, who are you? Instead, a wise man looks at the circumstances of his life. Just like a wise man walking past a vineyard that's all broken down, we walk through the circumstances of our life and we're meant to be humbled by it, be reproved by it, be educated by it, gain wisdom by it, 
so that we better understand our place in the relationship between us and God. And the whole of the word of God is for that purpose, for the purpose of instructing us, educating us, rebuking us, teaching us, so that we understand our estate and don't start trying to make more of ourselves than we actually are. Take stock of yourself. Understand what you are before God. Understand that he is completely within his rights to judge you utterly and completely, and yet by grace he has said, come up, take a higher seat. That is nothing but grace, 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 grace. So, next time I am standing here in this room, whether speaking to empty chairs or whether speaking to a room full of people, we will continue to try to learn these not only valuable but life-changing important lessons that we find in the book of Proverbs. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.